0: Season of the year. I do ask that you would help us amidst all of the busyness and activities that so often fill our days, that just for the next few moments, we might be able to truly focus on you. God, I, I pray that you would use your word to encourage, to challenge, to convict, to change each of us for your honor. Son's holy and precious name. We pray. Amen. Is that going to be really annoying to anybody else or just me? Is your hand in the same pocket your microphone is in? It is not. Okay. Keep your hands out of your pockets. <laughs> Keep yeah. my hands out of my pockets. <laughs> my sure. mom, yeah. Mom, yeah. mom used to tell me that all the time, and I never yeah. that, that <laughs> You need to be in the military for a while. Is it going to work? Yeah. Thank you, all right. Anyway, I hope you're not as distracted as I am, but I. I <laughs> you ever get distracted this time of year? I came across this story of a young mother who was having to do her Christmas shopping. She had a three-year-old and tried to find somebody to watch it, but couldn't find it. It So she, in tow with him, went to the mall to try and do all of her shopping. And as she was shopping, she had that horror that many parents have experienced. She suddenly realized her three-year-old son was no longer connected. In panic, she ran out of the store, and she looked down the hallways, and and sure enough, about halfway down the mall, her little son stood with his nose up against the glass, staring. She ran, and as she approached him, he saw her coming in. He turned to her as only a three-year-old can. Mommy, look at Jesus with all the lights. To which his mother sternly replied, Jesus, I don't have time for Jesus, I'm Christmas shopping. I fear that that is an easy mindset to get into. Uh, On the one hand, I absolutely love the Christmas season. There is no time in which family and friends and and all of the fun comes together and, and yet, On another hand, it is incredibly busy. It it is my hope that this Christmas season we might be able to figure out a way to set aside all of the distractions and to remember why do we celebrate Christmas. Orville was kind enough to to give me, he wants me to pull out something. He's going to give me a different headset. You want me just to grab a microphone, I can do that. No, no, I'll just mine. I think there's a short in that wire. I'm sorry. No, don't be. It did it this way last time. You got to flip it up. It's on. It's on. It's on. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. It's like a Verizon commercial from a few there years ago. There we go. There. Nice. Um, and is my clicker going to work? No. I apologize. I'm really complicated when I try to speak here. So thank you for humoring me. In fact, I, I did want to, to say thank you to Orville. That Orville has gone out of his way over the last six months to make me feel as much at home as possible as I make this new transition. And about a month ago, he he came to me and said, hey, how would you like to share the preaching duties over Advent? Advent. And he's absolutely right. One of the things that is about this job that that I miss the most is the opportunity on a weekly basis to get up and open God's word. I do get to preach occasionally, but it's not really the same when you're in a different place each week. But he asked, how about if we take tea? And so he asked me, what would you like to speak on? And I said, my favorite Christmas series ever was a Christmas series that I put together called The Four Kings of Christmas. And he said, four kings? You're going to have to help me with that. Uh, Four kings? And I said, well, of course there is the king that he talked about last week, the wicked king, King Herod. And and he did that well. And next week he's going to take the mysterious kings, the the magi. And okay, they're not really kings. That comes from we three kings of Orient are. And if you notice, I, I don't like the whole idea of only three kings. So my major has four kings. I think there was probably a whole host, more than just three or four. On the 18th, I will get a chance to speak again on the eternal king. But this morning I'd like to talk about the rightful king. Orbel said you're going to have to help me with that one. The rightful king? Well, if you have your Bibles, would you go with me back to the book of uh, Matthew? And and in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins a book the way no one who's ever written a book would encourage you to start. (laughs) When I was in seminary, the preaching classes uh, said that you always need to start a sermon with something that will grab the attention of the people. you become too familiar sometimes. Because I fear that when you hear Jesus Christ, you you get the idea that it's almost his last name. But that term Christ was in the Hebrew, it was Meshach. It was a Messiah. It's literally Jesus, the King. If you open your Bibles... I like this picture. I know it's a little silly but oftentimes when you come to the, the gospels, you talk about synoptic gospels. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the word synoptic simply means one eye. And Matthew, Mark and Luke share a lot of the same material. In fact, as you go through them, Mark only has 3% of his gospel that is unique to him. But Matthew has about 20%. So Mark has almost or Luke has almost a third. But the reality is They are telling the story over much of the same details. But while we may call them synoptic, I don't know that that's really fair because they each have their own unique perspective. John, of course, is the most unique. He's going to present Jesus as God. And so when he begins his book, where does he go? He goes clear back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, but the Word was also God. Uh, Luke, on the other hand, is going to present Jesus as the perfect man. And so of all of the gospel writers, Luke spends the most amount of time on Jesus' childhood. In fact, the only place you can hear any of the stories of Jesus' childhood is from Luke. He also goes back and he talks about the arrival of John the Baptizer as well. And you have most of the Christmas story really comes from the Gospel of Luke because he's presenting Jesus as a perfect man. Mark, on the other hand, presents Jesus as a servant. Probably better, a slave. And who cares the origins of a slave? But Matthew is going to present Jesus as the king. And in order to demonstrate that you are the king, the very first thing you must be able to do is to demonstrate that you are of the proper lineage. Do you know that a Messiah can't come today? It's impossible. Because there's no way to prove Acts, in 70 AD, there was a travesty that went even beyond the burning of the temple. In the temple were housed all of the genealogical scrolls. So after 70 AD, a Messiah cannot come because he cannot prove that he is an the Lord. Fully aware, every one of his readers could take his genealogy and go back to the temple and see, is this Jesus really from the line of David? And and I recognize that we don't like to spend a whole lot of time in in genealogies. And my guess is you probably read the genealogy about like that. You begin and it's done. Can Can I encourage you sometime to step back? Because the genealogy has some of the greatest demonstrations of grace you will find anywhere. Because Matthew does the unthinkable for a Jew. He includes four women. He includes somebody who has an ancestral relationship with her father-in-law. He includes a prostitute. He includes a Moabitess, which by command were never allowed to enter the temple. And he includes an adulterer. All four women were brought into the stories of the men in the genealogies. You know what you'll find? A bunch of men who hated God They did everything they could to stop God's will. And yet in the midst of the chaos, God is sovereign. May I suggest that genealogy may be exactly what we need in a world in which we find ourselves overwhelmed by the chaos and think can God possibly do any good? The genealogy really But the genealogy ends not as you might expect it to. He does not say, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father of Jesus. That's not what it says. It says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. See, the virgin birth becomes an incredibly important doctrine. That if we had time this morning, I would love to explore... But the the, the whole point is that Joseph was the legal heir to the throne of David. In fact, if you go back to verse 20, it says, But after he had considered this, speaking of Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. Two people in the New Testament are called the son of David. Jesus and Joseph. And in fact, really one of the most amazing parts, we don't have time this morning, to go back and look at the stories in Luke, but an angel appears to Zechariah and says, Zechariah, you've been praying for a son, I'm going to give you one. And he says, what? No way that can't happen. He couldn't talk for nine months. He comes uh, to Mary and says, Mary, you are highly favored among women. And she says, what are you talking about me? He says to Joseph, son of David, yeah, you're right. And yet, the son of David was what is called a carpenter. But I I fear that we probably don't get the right impression, because a carpenter in the first century was different than a carpenter today. Virtually nothing was made with wood. It's probably better translated a bricklayer, a common laborer. Somebody who lives 100 miles away from Jerusalem in a god-forsaken, god-forgotten part of Israel, even though he is the rightful heir of David, and I am convinced. How the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, that goes over most of our heads. One of the huge struggles you have when you're coming to the New Testament is we don't live in the culture of the New Testament. In fact, I just had a discussion this last week. I was up in the Twin City with a bunch of pastors, and, and there is a movement in the church today to enculturate the gospel. That we need to be able to hear the gospel. Through our culture and recognize that others will hear it through their culture and there becomes this struggle. How can I understand you if you don't understand my culture? And I recognize there's a danger of that, but I would argue strongly that all of us need to understand the scriptures through the culture of the people to whom it was written. Because this is not just some fairy tale. This is a real book written to real people facing real issues. And the more you can come to understand your culture, the better off you will be to understand this story. And I don't know that there are too many stories that illustrate it better than right here. Because when you hear the word pledged, you think, oh, she got engaged. How cute. A couple months ago, my third daughter, Anastasia, got engaged. How cute. To bring families and friends and people together, and they're getting engaged because they have decided they love each other. And they have a relationship that they desire to pursue for the rest of their lives. And my guess is most of you in this room, that's how you got engaged. It's not what happened in the first century. In fact, likely Mary was probably 13, 14, probably not any older than 15 when Mary's parents decided, I think it's time for Mary to get married. And Mary's parents went in search of a spouse. I had the incredible chance when I graduated from seminary to go teach in a Bible college in India. And one of the things that I appreciate so much about my time in India is the culture of India is nothing like the culture that I grew up in Minnesota. And one of the closest places to find that is they practiced arranged the marriage. In fact, one of the things I would do when I was really bored and wanted a good laugh is the Bangalore times. I was in the city of Bangalore, India. Every single day, that was back when they still actually printed a newspaper and you could turn the pages. You would get to the middle and there would always be three, four, five pages in the want ads of available brides and grooms. And to read the descriptions, homely gal from a good family. Now, just in case you don't understand, homely means they make a really good homemaker. That's what homely means. That's not what I think of when I think of homely. But they would have all of these ads, and you would look, I think I need to set up a marriage. I'm going to go find one in the newspaper. I, I doubt that's how Mary and Joseph did it. But as they would choose, typically what would happen is they would be brought together at the engagement party. While people are milling around, they would be given 10 or 15 minutes to talk, and they would never communicate again until the marriage night. In the Jewish culture, there was an extended period of time between the engagement and the wedding, generally about a year for two purposes. It was, first of all, to test the industry of the groom-to-be he was expected to go back to his father's house to prepare a place for them to live so that where he is, she may be also. Go read John's 14 sometime. John is telling the story of marriage. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us so that when he is finished, he will come and he will take us to be with him for eternity. That was the purpose of the groom. Let's see exactly how industrious you are. But we need a year. Test the purity of the bride to be. Is she really a girl worthy of the going to be? Well, you remember this story. I don't really have the time to go back to the book of, uh, of Luke, but in Luke, you, you have this story in which uh, Mary disappears. In, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, and, and it, suddenly the the Holy Spirit overcomes Mary and she becomes pregnant. And then she just simply gets up and leaves. I I, I hear that we bring too much of our culture to it and and we think of this discussion, Mary going to Joseph and saying, hey, I'm sorry, I I gotta go. I'm gonna go take care of my, my aunt. She's just gonna have a baby. She's in her 90s. I need to go. I don't think that's the way it worked at all. Because weren't allowed to talk. Mary disappears. And she comes back, I don't know, three, four, five, six months later, and suddenly Joseph Joseph. Joseph. I have no idea if that's really how the events went. But I don't think I can begin to describe the horror to Joseph, to find out the one he was to be led to was in fact not trustworthy. Because Joseph knew two things. was sexually pure. In fact, if you dropped out, it's going to say that he will take Mary into his house and he will have no union with her. I recognize that we have this perception that we are the first generation ever to face sexual temptation, that we have more sexual temptations than any other generation before us. But I don't think that's really true. In fact, in the first century, it was assumed if a man and a woman were alone together for 20 minutes, they had sex. What else would a man and a woman do together? Imagine not just having to avoid sex before marriage, but then living in a very small, crowded space for the next however many months, realizing there's no way you can get caught. I mean she's already pregnant, you don't have to worry about it, nobody's gonna know. Nobody an incredibly merciful man. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, you would find that the the punishment for adultery was stoning. In fact, I I was listening to one pastor. I I don't know where he got this, but it is an interesting graphic image that a woman would be brought and placed in a pile of manure up to her knees and stoned until she fell face first into the manure. And that was the typical cost of immorality. By most accounts that I have read, the first century, they had largely moved on from that. But that didn't mean you wouldn't expose them to disgrace. In in fact, what was common in the area around was to have the woman brought in front of the city and to shave her head so that everybody who saw her bald head would know she is immoral. And for months, maybe years, they would see the lack of hair and be reminded, oh, that's right, she is that immoral Mary, and Joseph had every right to disgrace her, lest that disgrace come back to him. But he just couldn't do it. And, and it's at this point that most of the sermons I've listened to goes to this: "Oh, Joseph loved Mary, and he just couldn't bring himself to to do it. He didn't know Mary, and yet even though he had every right." Because if I marry her, that is a tacit admission that I, in fact, am the father, and I know I'm not. So I will put her away quietly. And then it says, but after he considered this most of the movies, in fact the one that I just showed, the nativity story from 2006, if you follow along, he (laughs) he goes into the house and he talks to Mary and Mary's mom and dad. I doubt very much that that happened. And then he goes home and he has this this dream. The NIV leaves off what I would argue is a fairly important word. It, It is the word behold. The reason I think that's important is Behold has the idea of something unexpected, something radical, something really needed to take care of, to take attention to. That as he considered it, I think likely for days, maybe weeks, maybe even months. Haven't you? Yeah, I'm told that every single one of us dream. I, I, I don't remember a lot of my dreams, but when my kids were young, they loved to come down at lunchtime and have to share all of their dreams. And for whatever reason, my wife tried to tell me I should cons- be concerned about their dreams. I really don't care what you dream. Because <laughs> dreams are bizarre. They make no sense. And only the person experiencing them really gets it. But you've had a dream, haven't you? Or you woke up and you had to think for a second. No, 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 okay, wait a second. Was that a dream? Or was I really experiencing that? Do you know that God had not come in a dream for 600 years? The last recorded dream we have in the Bible is Daniel. At least Mary gets to talk face-to-face to to an angel. And Zachariah gets to see an angel. (sighs) Joseph actually gets to see this angel numerous times. Always in a dream. And as far as we know, never gets to ask any questions. It's a dream. And the dream he's told to do three things. To take Mary as his wife but not sleep with her. And to give the child the name Jesus. But what I find really interesting is, is I'm guessing some of us, myself included, have thought, if God would just come to me in a dream, I know I would listen. Do you know that the angel bases everything he has to say not on his own Joseph, this is not far-fetched. This is what God had promised. And so Joseph is forced to decide, is he going to do exactly what the angel had said? On the surface, this may seem like a really big step of faith. 2000 years ago took upon himself the punishment you deserve oh, died on the cross, was buried in the grave came forth out of the grave that all you have to do is believe really? You believe that? See faith is not really so much about how big a faith but in who that faith is placed and Joseph because he was believing the one who makes all things possible and who would one day take away our sins. See, the tradition of the first century was that the oldest son bore the name of the father. But Joseph didn't get to choose that name (coughs) because the angel had said, no, no, his name is going to be Yahshua. understand that in order for it to be true obedience, it has to be immediate, complete, To see if I can't uh, sum it up this morning. Are you truly willing to accept the place God has placed you? I think most of us, if we're honest, have been at that moment in our life where we think, God, I deserve better. I- I- I'm too talented for this job. Why does that person get the promotion and not me? Why do you have me here doing this? Joseph. chapter 2, you'll see it if you come to most Christmas parties, most Christmas programs. Uh, Jesus and Mary are coming to the city of Bethlehem and they're greeted by an innkeeper who says, I'm sorry, you can't stay here. And, and we get this idea that they had to travel all the way to Bethlehem and, and then they're turned down by an innkeeper. Well, number one, there's no innkeeper in the Bible. Number two, something I never understood till I went to India is the greatest virtue you can have in the Middle East is caring for the needs of family. All of Joseph's family were in Bethlehem and no one would take in a pregnant mother. Thank you for his incredible example to me, to each of us. And and God, my prayer is that he might be more than just a figure in our, our crush, that he might be more than just a story.